Sail E magazine, the online magazine providing a platform for local writers to share their thoughts and opinions on culture, community and creativity. Well, joining me are two of the contributors to the online magazine, Sadiqa Sahail. She's the author of A Dilemma on the Commercialization of Ramadan. That's one of her articles, Insights about Workplace Morale and Adaptability and Goals, along with many more articles she's written for the magazine. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's great to have you with us. Also joining us is Nasser Al-Falasi, who's the author of You, I and Us, along with Societies and Bushido. We're going to find out what that means. And A Divided Unity. He's just come back from the United States, where he finished his Master's in Global Affairs with a specialization in international relations and transnational security. Both of you actually have studied politics and interesting degrees that we're going to find out about in a little while. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So when did you get back from the States? Uh, it was about 1st of June, actually. Okay. And you're currently acting as chaperone uh, for the Summer Academy uh, program that's at NYU Abu Dhabi. Yes, it's an NYU Abu Dhabi Summer Academy program, and it's for high schoolers to get ready for university. You've just come from NYU. Yes. <laughs> in New York. In New York. Yeah. And you, but you grew up here, born here, grown up here. Your family are here. Uh, where did you go to school in the Emirates? Uh, I was in Al Ittihad Private School in Munzar. Um, and my undergrad was in Higher Colleges of Technology, Dubai. And your real interests are politics, history, culture. Yes. Uh, well, it was at first surprisingly financial services. Uh, however, uh, when I got a taste of um, the Sheikh Mohammed bin Sky Scholars Program at NYU in Abu Dhabi, it was a nine-month program, I started to learn more about politics and history, and that's where I changed my perspective and knowing that that's, I think, where I want to go down to. Well, reading your articles over the weekend for Sale E magazine, there's some really interesting uh, insights into your, the history from your culture, from the Middle East, and across the globe as well. And uh, we like to talk about history from time to time on Dubai Today, the lessons we can learn, and maybe some of the parallels of modern living with what's gone before. So we'll have a look at some of your articles in a moment. And Sadiqa, you are, uh, you know, as long as, as well as writing for uh, Sale E magazine, um, you also have the, your wonderful shop Spontiforia which is in our Wassel Square now this is a concept store mm-hmm. and you're a young woman just 23 years of age so already doing very well as an entrepreneur here in the Emirates uh, thanks. I think um, the environment in the UAE is very supportive towards um, opening small businesses. Um, there was a recent statistic that said that about 70% of the businesses here were small and medium enterprises. And um, doing something that I do, which is you know a combination of retail and food and beverage, uh, is something that I find challenging every day. Um, and I've learned a lot on the job. Um, I didn't have any, you know, background in, in business. Um, as you mentioned, you know, I studied politics. Um, so it was a wonderful experience. Uh, and I've been doing this for a year and a, a, year and a half. Um, so it's a nice break from academia. And it's also something wonderful because I get to interact with people every day. And, you know, you've done a lot of academia in your life, a bachelor's degree in international relations from the American University of Sharjah. Mm -hmm. And then you went on to do a master's degree in conflict prevention, sustainable peace and security from the University of Durham in the UK. What led you to that master's? 
Um, I think, you know, the journey started in, in high school. I was about maybe 14 or 15. And, um, you know, it, it's kind of early when you think about it, but that's the time when a lot of people start deciding what they want to do because, you know, university is only a couple of years away. Um, and the more that I read, I found myself drawn towards um, uh, international issues, global issues, um, finding sustainable change. Um, and then when I started my bachelor's degree in Sharjah, um, the more I read, the more I realized what my real interest um, was was in, you know, international security, um, especially with today's changing, you know, global global um, viewpoint of, of the way, you know, um, conflicts take place. This was something that was um, gaining more importance. Um, so right after I finished my bachelor's, I went on to Durham and spent a year um, specializing in that. And uh, when you were at Durham in the northeast of the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. and it's a question for you as well, Nasser, actually, when you were at NYU, were there many other people from the UAE or the Middle East studying alongside you or even, you know, around the campus? Um, in terms of PhD students, there were quite a few that were from the Middle East, um, but none from the UAE. But ironically, um, our building was called the Qasimi Building, ah. um, which was, you know, coming full circle because the American University of Sharjah was, you know, owned by the same sheikh. So, um, but there weren't many Middle Eastern students. So it was, it was, um, it was a nice experience because, I mean, I felt like, you know, moving to another country, I wanted to learn about other cultures and traditions. And surprisingly, um, the more you meet people from around the world, the the more similarities you find within cultures and traditions, and uh, that sometimes people don't seem to assume that. But would you agree with that, Nasser? <coughs> Most definitely. I mean, being in uh, New York, it's the heart of diversity, uh, pretty much, and there were. A quite a few um, Emirati um, students there doing their either undergrad or uh, masters and it was a very very diverse in a single classroom you would find a few from the Middle East from Asia from the Pacific and all around the world for you, Sadika, doing the Masters in Conflict Prevention, Sustainable Peace and Security, did you find being the only person on that course doing that Masters from not only the UAE but possibly from the Middle East, did, were people interested in you? Did they ask you questions? How did the relationship build for you? Um, I think because, I mean, we were only 26 people in the course and everyone that was enrolled in that were, were, you know, were pretty well versed in international politics. So I wasn't faced with a lot of questions when it came to, oh, you know, what's it like in the Middle East? Because a lot of them, you know, had read read a lot about it and they knew Dubai wasn't the typical Middle East that you hear in the news. Um, So I didn't really face any sort of questions in particular, but I did face a lot of fascination about, you know, Dubai and, um, oh, wow, it must be so glamorous and, you know, that sort of thing that you always get. Yeah, Yeah. well, that's true. You do. And I get that, too. Mm -hmm. I think all of us get that living in Dubai when we travel outside. But interesting uh, that there wasn't more interest in you and your culture, actually. Um, They were interested in in, in the culture in terms of, um, you know, I mean, there are always going to be these these, uh, negative misconceptions and stereotypes that people had um, and I mean I felt happy to sort of be an ambassador of some sort to try to change those stereotypes um, and you know no matter what little bit you do you're still contributing and making some change so yeah um, but you know it was such a change to go from you know the busy city life in Dubai to a quaint tiny village and <laughs> a village um, <laughs> yeah I mean it, it's a town but you know can <laughs> it felt like a village 
Yeah, yeah. You know, I there can, were there were about two streets in the in the main town. Yes. Um, but that was lovely. So. Yeah, it is beautiful, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, very interesting indeed, and quite cold and windy up there. Very. You felt it in the winter. NASA, for you in New York, did you ever come across any negativity from where you know your culture? Well, it is. Definitely, I mean, you would have to find it throughout in any any um, city or culture. Um, although it wasn't surprisingly, New York is a lot more open than in other places in the United States. Uh, they were very open, and in fact, in the UAE National Day, and sometimes in my uh, presentations at class, I would wear the national dress, the Kandor and Qatar Agal, going from my uh, apartment to um, taking the subway and going to my class. Um, but in regards of facing direct... Uh, no, not at all. Uh, it was a very uh, tolerant society. Nasser Al-Falasi, who's the author, we're really featuring Sally Magazine. Iman is travelling in the States at the moment and uh, doing some very interesting work. So we'll hear from her in a few weeks. But uh, really flying the flag for Sale E Magazine this morning, Nasser Al-Falasi. And we're going to be looking at some of his articles that he's submitted to the online magazine, including Societies and Bushido. And we have also joining us here uh, Sadiqa Sahail, who's the author of A Dilemma on the Commercialization of Ramadan. So we're taking a look at that article too. Um, questions coming in for Sadiqa from Ahmed. Ahmed, bear with us. We'll get to them, your question in a moment. I just want to uh, get into some of the articles. Let's start uh, with Societies and Bushido. Now, Nasa, is this the first article you've written for Sayali? Um It was one of the first. I started beginning in 2015 um, so it's quite recent I wrote about five six uh, and there is a kind of a flow to all my articles is that the end of any article is the beginning of the next article so there's a constant kind of system so it's, it's quite interesting in how where I take it to okay so in front of me then I've got April the 1st a divided unity then uh, societies and Bushido on May the 1st and then uh, UI and does on July the 1st uh, so just part <coughs> of that sequence but I wanted to get into societies and Bushido because a lot of what you touch on is you know drawing and looking at history and what we can learn from history and parallel with today's world so Explain a little bit about this article. Uh, so, societies in Bushido, it works. Um, it, it, the article focuses on a working social structure. What is a working social structure? Social structure, and if it's ever, if there is ever a specific working social structure, and by which I mean that societies uh, get along, where societies um, are, uh, you know, dedicated to helping one another and lifting the whole community up. So Societies and Bushido's focuses looks at the historic uh, aspect as Bushido, which is Japanese for the way of the warrior. And it was during the samurai era, uh, between the 8th and the 12th century, where what's interesting is that, um, unlike in Europe, uh, where w the feudal system was king and then, you know, the priests and then uh, landlords and uh, the peasants, in Bushido, in I mean, in Japan, it was quite different at that time, where it was the emperor at first and then the samurai, the guard, and then you'd have the farmers and the fishermen, and then you'd have the businessmen. And this is an interesting perspective because of Confucius idealism is that productivity, those who are productive are most important in society. And whether you're a farmer or a fisherman, you are most productive in society. And it talks about the importance of setting um, these value, important values uh, towards uh, in, in your society, either towards with your siblings, your family, your friends, and the way of the warrior, which is Bushido, is that uh, the 
person who who's you know the, the the warrior so the samurai or whoever it may be in that time um has a impor- a uh, role that he has to play amongst those around him in which he is kind of forced or is he's um promoted or to to protect and to increase their productivity and all that uh, so there's a responsibility pretty much he feels much. that sense of responsibility social structure structure society how do you define that uh, well in, in many different places it's uh, I mean when I went to New York I saw a difference in social structure by which I saw um, the middle class low class and then I saw an uh, pretty much an ethnic social structure where it was a lot of uh, different ethnicities, different eth- communities and ethnicities, uh, although still very diverse and in some cases working together in most cases. Um, in the UAE, it's a rather different uh, social structure too, a very actually um, productive one in that sense that it is evolving where the Emirati population and the expat population is, uh, um, you know, op- coming into dialogue with one another and understanding each other's culture and each other's uh, lifestyle and all that and we're adapting to that sense of a globalized social structure do you agree with that Sadiqa? Um yes I do I think it's interesting to see how um, depending on you know the social context you're in the, the responsibilities that are required if you change um, so I do agree do you think that on the whole I mean it appears to be uh, on the whole and this is one of the reasons people want to come and live here and I think people appreciate and acknowledge that you know there are there is a, a tolerance and a welcoming of uh, expatriates to this part of the world do you feel that within your family within you know deep rooted within your culture I mean you know it's your land and then you see different cultures coming here and settling here for many many years um Definitely. Uh, I mean, I may have not written this, but I uh, grew up a few years in Australia. Uh, my father was an ambassador there, and so I learned through the, my process there of um, tolerant civilization, tolerant s- societies and communities. And when I came here, I saw, in a sense, there are uh, a lot of people who share that same value, and they're accepting to one another. And it's important that I always believe is just because you know, you accept other people. You don't have to. It doesn't mean that you okay. You follow them blindly, or in a sense, but uh, accepting that people have different point of views, different perspectives, different religions, specifically. So, um, I do see it very, uh, in, especially in in Dubai and the United Arab Emirates. You see that welcoming um, uh, kind of mo- uh, motion or movement. Mm. Yeah, I also think that, I mean, if you think about it, a lot of people tend to like the notion of a, of a pure culture. But um, even if you were to go back to, let's say, what is a quintessential pure Emirati culture, it has so many influences from the region around, from the subcontinent, from Iran, from Africa. So um, if you go back thousands of years, every culture has taken something from other cultures. And the only difference today is that because of the... Um, the change in time and space with technology and and travel that it seems a lot more fast paced but it's always been like that you know you can just look at language and see loan words have come from so many other languages um and i think that's the, that's the beauty in any culture the fact that it's borrowed and shared and you know and i love how you can trace sort of um historical events through a culture mm. um and that's something that i think everyone should appreciate and be proud of and I mean, if we were to look at our culture here today, it's, it is a combination of um, many different cultures that have all come here and built the space. So I think that's something to be proud of, that everyone here has a common goal, like one of Nasser's articles discussed. And also to add on that, which I believe is very true, a, a lot of uh, Arabic dialect and Emirati dialect is based upon other cultures. 
wherein we say the word bishkara, which is uh, generally used as a uh, um, a house uh, assistant. Um, it came uh, as I was told from my uh, father and my uh, you know elders that it came from the word pushkar, in which the, where the Europeans came and they needed help to push a car that was kind of stuck in sand. They thought the word pushkar means helper which means help us push the sand. And you see a lot of these words and these cultures mixing up in our modern society today. And it's a real pleasure talking with two people from the UAE. I'm talking to Sadiqa Sahail, and uh, she's been contributing articles, writing for Sale E magazine, an online magazine, really providing a platform for local writers, their opinion when it comes to community, creativity, culture. 23 years of age, half Emirati and half Pakistani, has a bachelor's degree in international relations from the American University of Sharjah and a master's degree in conflict prevention, sustainable peace and security from the University of Durham in the UK. Now Sadiqa owns and manages the boutique cafe concept store Spontiforia in Wassel Square. And she loves baking. She loves baking cakes and curling up with her cats and reading a good book. Uh, sounds great to me. Good to have you here, Thank Sadiqa. You. Thank you. And also joining us, Nasser Al-Falazi, who uh, also contributing a lot to Sale E-Magazine. His particular interest is in global affairs, and he's just come back from NYU in the States, and he's chaperoning this summer at the Academy at NYU Abu Dhabi. But he's done his master's in global affairs with a specialization in international relations and transnational security. History, culture, politics are all areas that NASA's interested in. Um, don't know if you like to uh, read a good book and maybe stroke a cat at the same time. <laughs> <as I> <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, we've been looking at some of your articles this morning, NASA, and we're going to move on and, and look at Sadiqa's as well. And actually, I just want to clear up a question that came in from Ahmed for you, Sadiqa, saying, now that you've started a successful business, when do you think you'll be in a position to apply the education you got at Durham University? Well, I think all of that depends on um, the course that my business runs. You know, with any business, it takes about three years to, you know, really properly establish all the systems. Um, and we've only been doing it for about a year and a half. Um, so I'm hoping that in the next couple of years, you know, um, things start running more automatically on their own as we, you know, establish more systems for our operations. Uh, and then I would definitely love to go on to, you know, teaching at the university, um, possibly pursuing a PhD. Um, so, yes, that is in the plan because it, it's what I love. That's the, you know, that's my passion, the, the academia. And it doesn't, one doesn't mutually exclude the other. I think when you've studied like that, it's in you, that interest, the way you view the world, the way you question and look yeah. around you. So that continues with whatever you're doing, I guess. It, it makes you um, um, continuous pessimist, which is one <laughs> thing I say, because you're the one thing you're taught with academia is that there's no right or wrong. You have to question everything and you can't take anything at face value. And so I remember my first month at Durham, everyone in our course, you know, came in with all these high hopes of changing the world and we were disillusioned so quickly. Um, but, you know, again, you you learn a lot and I think it really helps with your analytical skills when it comes to other things as well. So so not just, you know, politics or academia. Do you share this interest with your husband? Uh, yes, I mean, he does enjoy, um, you know, debating politics, but he's got a background in, in computer security, um, you know, but for me, I tend to be more um, pedantic about it, whereas he's more um, rational. <laughs>
<laughs> Sounds good. Good conversation, I yeah. think, between you. Now, so let's take a look at a divided unity, one of the articles uh, that you've contributed to Sell E magazine. And what really kind of caught my eye and my interest was talking about uh, the history of the Middle East and the UAE. Um, some of it I already was aware of. Some of it I wasn't so aware of. Um, you go right back, actually, to the 1900s uh, when the agreement, British made the agreement with, with the Arabs. Talk us through some of this history. Um, sure. So um, I love history, and which is why I always add it to any of my articles and um, all that. Uh, so it goes back to the. I mean, you look at actually, way even way back with the time um, in in the Middle East, there was always a sense of you know a, a specific caliphate or like uh, the uh, Abbasid or the Umayyad who you know controlled a large portion of the Middle East. Uh, and the last of uh, we know the Ottoman caliphate uh, lasted for. Uh, like a few hundred years and what happened is that uh, by the uh, early 1900s is that um, it started to decay and it started to break apart the Ottoman Empire and so uh, with the invention and the uh, advancement of transport where a lot of uh, Western and regional powers were able to come into the Middle East and uh, uh, so what happened is that during in uh, in, um, in the early 1900s, there was a McMahon uh, correspondence, which was a letter from uh, Britain to uh, Sharif Hussain in uh, Mecca. And uh, this uh, letter states that if the Arabs revolt against the Ottoman Empire, um, they will uh, establish an independent Arab state. Uh, and this was very, I mean, at that time, there was a lot of you know, historical disputes between the Ottomans and the Arabs. Um, and so, uh, in uh, in the na 1918, uh, 1918 uh, there was the establishment of the Arab Revolt, uh, where uh, a lot of Arabs gathered together and revolted against um, the Ottoman Empire. Uh, however, before that, although there was an agreement between Britain and the Middle East, uh, the Arabs was there was another agreement between uh, Britain and France, which is known as the Sykes-Picot um, Agreement. And this Sykes the Sykes-Picot Agreement stated that a, you know a large chunk of Middle Eastern land, or that as we see today, uh, is divided into uh, French colonial powers or British colonial powers. And then again, you're speaking back at the, you know, in the early 1900s, where it was um, right after World War I, and the thought that, okay, we need to extend our influence around the world uh, is a very dominant idea. And um, so, uh, so when the Arabs did revolt against the Ottomans, um, there was a bit of a backlash between all the agreements that um, that were there. I mean, the British had three uh, different agreements, the Belfort Agreement, uh, the Sykes-Picot, and the McMahon. And they were not able to implement all of them because they all contradicted each other in a sense. Uh, but however, although the Ottoman Empire did uh, come to its end and it's, um, you know, it broke apart, it's uh, dissolved, so the Arabs started to get again that uh, idea of national uh, unity or national uh, entity um, where they all started to have an identity and say okay who are the Arabs what are the Arabs anyone who speaks Arabic is Arabic uh, you know they started to ask all these questions and that's where you see a lot of modern states today the lines that are drawn and the, some of the um, situations and events that are around the world is because of that rise of an Arabic identity where 
you try to define the lines, the borders, the communities and all that. Mm, it's really interesting. Check out the article. Read it in full on Sale Magazine, saleemagazine.com. We've posted up a link on our blog at Dubai Today, dubaii1038.com forward slash Dubai Today. Really interesting insight. And of course, you're talking a lot about paralleling where we're at today and what we can learn and how to move forward and how to overcome conflict as well. And you focus a lot in an article, You, I and Us, on this idea of of having a common goal so regardless of actually even regardless of culture in a way it's about having a common vision rather than maybe what your religion is or your tribe is or you know some of the sort of areas that people in the politics it's a difficult one it's a challenging one and it's some would say an idealistic uh, one however it's it's great because you're moving forward with a positive idea of bringing peace to the world uh, true. I mean, um, I truly believe in tolerance and in communities working together. I mean, nothing makes me more happy than seeing, you know, uh, do you hear the people sing? You know, when, when in, in the, in the Mizrahab, when people unite against a specific goal, they have a s- common goal. And I think that is very important in societies. And um, thankfully, like around in, in, the, in the UAE, we have a form of a common goal where a lot of national nationalities, religions, ethnicities work together in a specific common goal. And it is the, uh, uh, through the wisdom and the study of our uh, leaders that they set a common goal, for example, whether it's the Expo 2020, where it's uh, any kind of um, idea that this community is working for and striving for. And it, it makes us constantly uh, in need of cooperation. And, you know, when you're interdependent between one another, conflict is very uh, rare to you know, arise from within our community. Let's take a look at your article, Sadiqa, A Dilemma on the Commercialization of Ramadan. Why did you feel the need to write this? Um, my articles in sale each month reflect my thought processes that I'm going through. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, running my business for me is something that um, I learn on the job. I learn something new every day. And I sort of like to record that. Um, some things that I can read, you know, years down the line. But again, something that can maybe help other people that are in the same situation right now. Um, and so we opened a year and a half ago. And last Ramadan, we were still um, in our early stages. So, you know, that kind of promotional aspect wasn't as strong as it um, was this month month and I always had the idea that I don't understand why Ramadan is so commercialized if you look around you um, you know starting from May for example they'll start with food advertisements and iftar buffet deals and you know that's not the essence of the month the essence of the month is very spiritual Um, again you're supposed to reflect you're supposed to spend time with family so this is um, the complete opposite and um, so when it came to me, um, I had this dilemma between my personal view and my conscience and then, you know, also being a business owner, because at the end of the day, you know, you, ha- you have to stay afloat. You have to make a profit. And you, um, you have a business, a concept to, yeah. store, which is about food mm-hmm. and about uh, also gifts. And so it kind of fits into that realm. And it interesting really does. that uh, you were mentioning in your article about when the, you mentioned the word Ramadan, people will think of food as being a part of this time and, of, and, and it is mm-hmm. but of course it's much more than that it's so funny because you're supposed to only have one meal a day but then that becomes the focus of the whole day or the whole month and um, anyway so when I was going through this dilemma a few months ago um, I said right you know what what are the values that we have as a business and the values that we have and the reason why I started um, our cafe Spontiforia is because I wanted people to come to a place feel at home feel relaxed I'm, I'm all about you know um, the 
the little luxuries that people take for granted, you know, reading a good book, um, sitting with friends and family and not having to constantly be connected or, you know, working. And what, with technology? Yeah, with technology and, and you know, the, the idea that you should always be, you know, replying to your work emails, that, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so when I thought about that, I said, well, first of all, the demand is there for, for the kind of things that I provide during Ramadan, which is, you know, sweets, essentially. So if, if I don't do it, I'm really not going to be affecting the overall demand because, you know, there are a thousand um, other competitors that are doing the same thing. Um, and second of all, the kind of thing that I was providing in terms of like um, customized desserts um, are the type that people would, um, you know, collect, take away, go home and have with their family and friends, which is essentially you know, the kind of thing we want to promote. We want people to, um, you know, go back to just sitting for hours with your family and friends and, and sharing conversations and um, not having to think about the time. And, and, you know, so then when I had this dilemma, I, I thought about how I was going about Ramadan. And I realized that, you know, I'm not advertising about, you know, the new soup mix or something like that. I'm, what I'm providing is actually going to, to help with the essence of Ramadan, which is spending time with your family and friends. And so I tried to kind of achieve that balance but it was it was hard coming to that conclusion with the personal well um hisham was saying that you know he, over the years he's noticed this particularly with the iftar buffets that it's become very commercial and goes on to say traditionally muslims break their fast with a light meal that includes dates milk and water but now it has gone from that to a scrumptious feast that is not only bad for everyone's health but also leads to wastage mm-hmm. What are your thoughts then? I, I completely agree with, with that. Um, and that was, you know, my biggest dilemma. And it's really sad to see how um, whether you go to iftar buffets or you go to people's homes, they just take it as an excuse to really, you know, indulge in uh, carbs and fried foods and everything when that's totally the opposite of what it should be. Um, and, and I hope that people come to the realization that things should change not only for, you know, their health, but also, you know, to, to stay true to what the essence of the month really is. Because it, it, it's a brave from you know your daily run for the other 11 months of the year it's a time for you to reflect and relax and and it's good for your body but uh, people don't seem to do that with the feasts that they indulge in and and the wastage is the saddest part nasa what do you think uh, definitely i think uh, ramadan is as um, you mentioned that it is important to kind of reflect upon your own not just physical being but your spiritual mean as well, uh, being as well so you have to be sure that um, you know, you stay away from things that you like to indulge so much in. Uh, and it's not just to, you know, to take it away or anything. It's just to teach you to be self-disciplined in that sense. And when it comes to food wastage, it's, it's horrible. It's horrific when you have a lot of food that is being thrown away. And one of the, you know, solid waste management in, in the world is pretty much food and beverage. And, uh, you know, in some countries like France, where they kind of started banning those wastage and all that, uh, we still have a lot of countries uh, that still, you know, our societies consume a lot of food and throw away a lot of food. Siddiqui, you mentioned in your article about at the end of the day, it's down to the individual to check themselves and to make decisions and have balance in their life so it's about saying no and not saying yes to Mm -hmm. everything yeah food and otherwise I think um, it's very important for you to self-reflect and you know if you if you are confident in that you know you're um, ticking all the boxes that you want when it comes to spiritual practices and other practices um, then you know it's all about balance it's all about achieving the two you know we're, we're all rational human beings so we we have the ability to choose and everyone's life is different from the other person so 
um, it's really up to everyone's discretion, but I hope that they do have that discretion. People are interested in your academic background mm-hmm. and the fact you're running a, a business here in the UAE, as is saying. Uh, Sadiqa, is it easy? Will it be easy to go back to academia after a break of maybe two or three years? Um, I think, yeah, there would be a little bit of um, adjustment period. Um, you know, I came to Dubai started my business after moving back from England and I had this ideal that yes I would of course read academic articles every week and and stay afloat but the last time that I I read anything academic was when I was submitting my thesis Um, so I know it will take a few more months to to get back into it but you know my my real calling is in that in in, you know reading and writing um, academically so and you're keeping a hand in with articles for Sally I know not so academic but nevertheless they are but it's, it's good to keep that flow of writing uh, even though you know it's very different structurally from you know academic writing and making that change can be a bit of a challenge sometimes um, but yeah I am looking forward to going back to that eventually and, and I know it'll be a challenge um, and I know that a lot will have changed you know people tend to talk about like um, doctors always having to stay afloat with what's happening in medicine but with today's political climate it's exactly the same and if Hesser it's something you're considering yourself then something like a PhD uh, you can do it at any age that's true yeah yeah you can but it's a tough one it is it is yeah it takes years so NASA what's on the cards for you Uh, you've just finished your MA in uh, global affairs international uh, affairs at NYU in New York but you're through the summer here you are chaperoning at the NYU in Abu Dhabi and for their summer program what's next on the cards for you Uh, well there are various you know opportunities uh, in our in my cards hopefully um uh, just like Sadiq, and my, you know, uh, I do try to look at an academic perspective, and um, I, I'm getting involved at NYU and all that because I do hope to get a. Re- you know, I was uh, a teacher's assistant at and in, in back in New York University, and I worked at the United Nations for a while, and I realized I looked at two different, uh, you know, workplaces, and even over in, when I was here, I worked at uh, Do Telecom. And so I saw a more international uh, kind of workplace at the UN. I saw a more business focus in, in at Do, and then I saw a teaching kind of academic. And out of all the three, I did enjoy the academic one the most, uh, where I helped you know lead the classroom and open dialogue between the students and all that. Uh, so um, uh, during this time, where I hope to uh, you know doing my NYU Abu Dhabi chaperoning, and then I'll hopefully. Uh, doing uh, uh you know involve myself in research at NYU Abu Dhabi and at the meantime as many people are aware is that I have to uh, u- um, do my um, UAE national service military service as most male student mo- most male from the age of 18 to 30 have to do so uh, and that would take about 9 months in which I will then uh, start off with my PhD in August 2016 hopefully Wonderful young minds from the UAE. Thank you very much for joining me this morning and stay in touch and come back and visit me again on Voices of Diversity. It's great getting your insight, your thoughts, your ideas and opinions. And you can read at their work. Check out saleemagazine.com. All the details are up on our website on the Dubai Today page and uh, yeah, read their articles in full. Um, Ania's just texting to say, I agree with you, Sadiqa, about the wastage of food and with you, Nasa. Ramadan is about reflection 
self-reflection and spirituality. In fact, it teaches us to ponder about those who have less and take care of them. But in such parties, so much food goes wasted, which is really sad. That money could go elsewhere. That's according to Munir. Thank you very much for that message, Munir. Thank you very much to Nasser Al-Falasi and also to Sadiqa Sahail. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much.